we can help others to know you better. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, recently, identity was voted the word of the year. So if you've been listening to the media much over the last couple of years, you will no doubt have noticed how often identity is talked about, whether it's racial identity or gender identity. And then in the youth space, youth are constantly encouraged to find their identity. And so what is an identity? Well, Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, to have an identity is to have something sustained that is true of you in every setting. True of you in every setting. Practically speaking, um, it's the thing that makes you feel significant. It's the place you go to for your worth. In our culture, the way in which you find your identity or get your sense of self-worth is through looking inside. You look deep inside, you find that dream, you look at that feeling, and that's how you find yourself. But it used to be that we found our identity in our role in our community and in sacrificing our own interests for the good of that community. But now our culture says, if you want to find your identity, then you need to say, no, I don't care what my family says, I don't care what my community says, I'm going to be who I am, how I feel. Uh, and I have young kids, so I'm constantly watching um, you know, animation movies, and we see this expressed in the movie Moana, if you've watched it. She's part of a community, she was given a role, and yet her, her grandma um, tells her something different. She says to leave the community to find herself. She says, and if the voice starts to whisper, to follow the father's star, Moana, that voice inside, is who you are. It's about breaking free from society's expectations and limitations and being who you know you are on the inside. But there's a problem with defining our own identity. Firstly, an identity that's based on looking inside is unstable. See, if our identity is that durable core, it's something that doesn't change no matter what environment we're in, well, if we look inside, it's always changing. Do you remember your 15-year-old self? Remember how many stupid things, if you were like me, you did, which you feel completely different about now that you're an adult? For example, when I was 15, I um, dated a girl and then she broke up with me. So I still had um, her favorite CD, which we listened to. Um, so what do you think I did with that CD? I, I scratched it up and then I mailed it back to her. Yeah. The respect level. Just, um, what an idiot. What an idiot, right? So our, our sense of self, our, our feelings are unstable. Secondarily, it's huge pressure. So as I mentioned in traditional cultures, you were given your role. But since we don't look outward to God and we don't look to our family... Now we've got to achieve our identity. Benjamin Nugent, in an essay in New York Times, said this, When good writing was my goal in life, I made the quality of my work the measure of my worth. And so he started to fear what others would say. If you're going to make anything else your identity, if you're going to make relationships or jobs your identity, then they will start to crush you. In Weariness of Self, Dr. Elaine Erberg 
explains why depression has become the most diagnosed mental disorder in the world. It says it's because of increased feelings of inadequacy. If our identity is in our relationships, what happens when our relationships get strained? If it's in our um, sense of approval, then what happens when we don't get the likes or the comments that we're searching for? If our identity is in our performance, then it's only as strong as our ability to perform. And so we need an identity that doesn't crush us. We need a secure person or place in which our identity can rest without fear or anxiety. And that means it can't come from us. It has to come from outside of us. It has to come from God. And in the Bible, God announces to us an identity that cannot be changed or undermined or threatened by ourselves, by our sin or our society, no matter how we feel or how we've performed. And it doesn't need the approval of other people around us. It's an identity filled with meaning and purpose that doesn't change. And so to start um, understanding our identity, then it's helpful to go back to the very first chapter of the Bible in Genesis 1. We're introduced to God, but there's a problem. See, God is invisible. So how can we know an invisible God? Now, Greek um, philosophical thought said, well, um, yes, God is the result of logical reasoning, but we can't know God. But in the Bible, there is an answer to the invisibility and the knowability of God. And it's addressed by him making images of himself through us. Humans are the argument for God's existence. In Genesis 1, 26 to 27, God says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so just like a mirror can't generate its own light, but only reflect it, our identity doesn't come from within, it comes from outside of us. And because we're created to reflect what God is like, when people see us, They're meant to get a glimpse of what God is like. So what does this mean for our identity? Firstly, your identity is found in helping others to know God. Your identity is found in helping others to know God. Now, the reason kings and queens, they put their um, image onto coins is because they, they want it to be so that wherever you are in the empire... You, you can have an image of your ruler even though they're not physically present. But ever since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve rebelled and ate the forbidden fruit, it's like the image has been shattered like a broken mirror. We don't reflect the light of God's glory as clearly as we once did. It's kind of like getting a coin and scratching it on the ground or that CD that I gave to my girlfriend, scratching it on the ground. The fall meant that we stopped helping others to know God. Instead of showing God's love, we speak evil about others. Instead of doing justice, we treat people unfairly. And we fail to stick up for the poor. Instead of showing people God's trustworthiness, we speak lies about one another. It's like we were intended for greatness, but have forgotten. But God has a plan to remind us of our true identity. God saved Israel to help others to know God. God saved Israel to help others know God. Now, the first thing he needed to do was to teach Israel so that they could know him. 
And so that's where the Ten Commandments come in, which is the foundation of all the other laws in the Bible. And in chapter 5, verse 6, if you've got your Bibles open, God tells Israel that he's made himself known through rescuing them. He says as his first commandment, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Back when Exodus was written, there were many gods. So it's not controversial to say you believed in God. What was controversial is to say that there was only one to the exclusion of others. And it's still controversial today in um, communist countries around the world. Um, It's actually, you can be imprisoned, tortured or killed for having that belief. So how do you know Yahweh is the only God? Because you're really putting yourself out in the line in some places to say that. Well, here it's because God has delivered Israel. He's saved them through miracles, through plagues, from slavery. Something only God could do. Because God saves, he wants us to love him above all things. And that helps us to understand the second commandment. Commandment number two goes on to warn against the most dangerous threat to the knowability of God, and that is idolatry. Verse 8 says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath, and that is in the water under the earth. God's already made us. He doesn't need to make more images of himself. No, these images we make can only distort God and prevent people from knowing God truly. And God knew Israel all too well. He knew what they would do with an image. Shortly after God gives the law the first time, Mount Sinai in Exodus, what what does the Israelites do? Well, they get impatient waiting for Moses, and so they decide to get all of their jewellery together with Aaron and turn it into um, a bull, a golden calf, and then they praise that golden calf as, it is, as if it is the gods who has brought them out of Egypt. How do you think God felt? Um, I was dating a, co- a girl um, when I was 19, and at one time I saw her um, at a club. I all these stories about all these failed relationships, by the way. <laughs> One stood, stood with me. Thank you, Pippi. Um, so I saw her at this club, and, I, and so I, I walked over, and I, and I talked to one of her friends. And then they said, oh, who are you? And I said, oh, I'm her girl, um, boyfriend. <laughs> girlfriend. Okay. Um, and he said, no, you're not. And I said, yes, I am. He said, no, you're not. That guy is her boyfriend. And I was like, no. Uh, <laughs> And that, at that point, I realized I was the guy on the side. Now, how would you feel in that situation? Pretty jealous, pretty angry, right? And so it is with God. God cannot tolerate anyone or anything that puts God in second place. The third commandment is all about helping others know this one true God. Verse 11 says, you shall not... Take or carry the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, if we're honest, the third commandment feels more like a good reminder. Like, how did watch your mouth get into the top ten? What's the big big deal about God's name? Well, names are precious, which is why we don't like our names twisted or forgotten, mispronounced or made fun of. 
At high school, I received uh, the nickname Stony uh, in year seven because I was really tired. Um, and so okay, I didn't get much sleep. And the sad thing was, for the rest of high school, everyone called me Stony. Uh, they didn't know my name. In fact, they didn't know my, my, anyone's name in my family. They called my younger brother Little, Little Stone. Um, and they called my mum Mrs. Stone. So in other words, it showed they didn't really know me or my family. Now God's name is his reputation. To praise his name is to honour him. To speak poorly of his name is to speak poorly of him. So the third commandment, here God is telling us that we ought to bear or carry God's name in our life in such a way that people will want to think well about him. Back in chapter 4, verse 6, Moses told Israel that if they observed God's law carefully, then it would be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Moses anticipates the nations asking, where does this great wisdom come from? And that brings us to the heart of Israel's special calling. God told Abraham that out of his offspring, all the nations will be blessed. It brings us back to Genesis 1 and the role God gave to us as his image bearers. Chapter 4, verse 8 goes on to explain why the nations will call Israel wise and be drawn to their God. Moses says, What great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. The word righteous um, is where we get the word justice from. And Moses says there's going to be like a justice in the law and their outworking that's going to impress the people around us. We see this in the fourth commandment in verse 12 where God emphasizes the point that the Sabbath is about giving rest to others, caring for others. In connection um, in verse 15... The connection in verse 15 is that since God delivered you from toil out of slavery, so you ought to relieve the toil of others. So by its very nature, the Sabbath is a time of giving mercy. In fact, built into all the rest of the Ten Commandments is the principle that we're to care for others. Let me show you. There's Commandment 5. One's parents have a right to respect. Commandment 6. One's neighbour has the right to life. Commandment 7, one's neighbour has the right to exclusivity in marriage. Commandment 8, one's neighbour has the right to his property. Commandment 9, one's neighbour has the right to honest and truthfulness. Commandment 10, one's neighbour has the right to security in marriage and one's neighbour has the right to their own household. God saved Israel and gave them his righteous law to help others see how good God is so they can know him again. But they failed to show the nations the righteousness of his laws. And this is true of us as well. Let's take the ninth commandment, for example, you should not give false testimony. Who here can honestly say, I've never lied, I've never slandered another person, I've never exaggerated the truth for my own benefit, I've never covered up my faults or hidden awkward things I don't want other people to know about? 
I've always told the truth in every situation to every person. But it gets worse. Many people struggle with the truth. They exaggerate accomplishments. They minimize failures. Why? Because we want people to be pleased with us. The reason I lie is that I love people's high opinion of me more than I love God in telling the truth, which is also breaking the first commandment. So my lying is a double whammy. But if the approval of others is something important to you, so important you must have it at all costs, then it exposes an idol in your heart, which is breaking the second commandment. And we know God doesn't lie, so when we give false testimony, we fail to carry or represent God in a way that others will think well of him. So we break the third commandment as well, and on it goes. Tarnishing God's reputation is serious. After the Israelites heard God speaking from the mountain, they said in verse 25, This great fire will consume us, and we will die if we hear the voice of our Lord, our God, any longer. For what mortal has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived? Imagine being there. Your your kids are scared. You want to comfort them, but you can't because you're scared too. You're holding them so tight because, you know, if one of them runs up that mountain, they'll die. God's holiness, it's awesome and it's terrifying. And God's asked you to obey him. But you would record the failures of so many people before you. Numbers 15, there's a story of a man who collects sticks on the Sabbath, contrary to the law. And so God told them to stone him for that one infraction of the law. In the Garden of Eden, it was one bite from a forbidden fruit that brought brought disease and death and brought condemnation for all of mankind. In Genesis 19, Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt for taking one backward glance at the city that God was about to destroy. One glance. We think sin is not that bad because we have a very human-centered view of it. It doesn't seem very bad to us. But you measure the wickedness of a deed in part by who it's against. Now, if I go over and I kick, kick the wall, um, it's a sin of frustrating and people come out and probably attack me. I don't want to damage the walls here. It's an awesome building. But say I kick a, kick a dog, then you've done something genuinely bad, right? That's really bad. Say then you kick a lady next to you at the grocery store, you're going to go to jail. Then you walk into Buckingham Palace and you go up to the King of England and you just kick him. It's going to be a lot worse than that. Those guys with the fuzzy hats are going to start beating you. See, our sin is infinitely wicked because it's against an infinitely righteous and glorious God. We haven't just failed in helping others know God. We've made people think poorly about God. In Ezekiel 36, we read that God's people had failed to obey God's law and because of their wickedness, the nations were speaking poorly about God. And so in verse 21, God says, But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. So he sent us Jesus to help us to know God again. He came as the image of God before it got scratched up by the fall. We see in Colossians 1.15, he's the image of the invisible God. You look to Jesus and you know that, that's, how God, that's how you do it. That's what God is like. That's how you teach. That's how you love. That's how you serve. 
That's how you show mercy on the Sabbath, by healing the sick. That's how you do human. In fact, Jesus loves his neighbor perfectly, even when his neighbor was his enemy. When the Roman soldiers spat on his face and struck him in Matthew 26, he turned the other cheek. When they crucified him, Jesus prayed for their, um, for their forgiveness in Luke 23. His last act was to honor his mother by asking John to take care of her. Before the most sacrificial display of love for one's neighbor when Jesus died on a cross for us. And what was the result? Well, we begin to see the result in Mark 15:39. The nations represented by a Roman centurion responded to this by saying, truly this man was the son of God. Jesus helps us to know God again. And Jesus saves us to help others know God. He saves us to help others know God. When we trust Jesus, he gives us his spirit, which Ezekiel 36 says, gives us a new power to obey the law so we can start displaying the righteousness of God to others. And in Matthew 5, Jesus goes up onto a mountain, much like Moses, to teach his disciples the deeper application of the Ten Commandments. He wants us to display God's righteousness so that, as verse 16 of Matthew 5 says, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. Now our memory is jogged. We realize our true identity as God's image bearers, known and loved and saved by God. And we realize how we're meant to live as God's image bearers, to help others to know God. And it had a massive impact all the way back uh, in Bible times. In Rome, the poor women, slaves, orphans, babies had less value and less rights than Roman citizens. And in the Roman Empire, Christianity grew by 40% every year simply by the way that they were caring for orphans and widows and the others around them as they shared the good news. In the rise of Christianity, Rodney Stark says, to cities filled with the homeless and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. The Roman Emperor Julian, writing in the 4th century, regretted the progress of Christianity because it pulled people away from the Roman gods. He said, atheism, that's the Christian faith, by the way, because we only have one God, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans, or Christians, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. A few years ago, an atheist named Matthew Paris wrote an article about the impact of Christianity in Africa in Times Magazine. He said, as an atheist, Christians were always different. Christians, black and white, working in Africa do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write, and only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital or school and say, the world would be better without it. Jesus saves us so we can help others to know God better. 
Here are two takeaways. Firstly, your unchanging identity comes from God. Because your identity is an image bearer. It's given to you. Your worth is found in God and not circumstances or feelings. You're valuable to God regardless of what others say about you. So if you're not a Christian or you're, you're having doubts, I want you to know that you're known and you're loved by God. And if you acknowledge your failure to put God first and the ways in which you've sought to make other things, place your identity and worth in other things than God, God says if you trust him, the pressure is off. You're forgiven. You don't have to earn your identity. Jesus paid for it and gives it to you freely. You're already an image bearer. You're known, you're loved, and you're saved by God. And if you're a Christian, then make it your aim to be who you are meant to be, saved by grace. And that is to draw others to God. Now, we may grumble about laws, but have you ever thought how much better life would be if the whole world, if everyone kept the Ten Commandments? We wouldn't need locks on doors or fraud protection. We wouldn't need to spend money on weapons or defence systems. We wouldn't need detentions at school or prisons. And we, as the Christian community, have the opportunity, especially when we gather together, to show the world something better. So where in your life do you have the opportunity to care for people in a genuine and sacrificial way? Perhaps it's showing appreciation for someone who goes unnoticed. Perhaps it's offering to take someone out to coffee to hear how they're going and to pray for them. Perhaps it's offering to look after someone's kid when they're um, going through a rough time, which is what um, Pip um, did recently, which I was encouraged by. As you do this, our goal is to connect our deeds with our motivation, to tell them our appreciation for the love of Jesus that he has shown us. And when we fall short, which we will, we can tell them of what a great saviour he is to forgive us and to love us in our sin and weakness. Let me close uh, with a story of how the love of Christians impacted me before I became a Christian. So um, after my parents got divorced, my mum moved us um, out to Orange while my dad stayed in Sydney. So every uh, two weeks, my dad drove out to Orange to visit us. And um, accommodation was expensive, and to do it every two weeks was pretty full on. But somehow he came in contact with a Christian pastor. And so what that Christian pastor offered to do was he, he actually opened his house to my dad. And so I found myself wondering, why would some random guy be so generous and kind to us? And when God prompted me to start thinking about Jesus all those years later, I was already very positive about Christianity and Jesus because I'd witnessed Jesus' love in such a remarkable way. And so may God use us in the same way. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, Jesus tells his disciples in John fourteen fifteen, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Um, please forgive us for the ways that we have failed to show others um, how great you are. And by your spirit, enable us to um, start to reflect the great love that you have shown us in your son to others. In Jesus' name, amen.